You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Trying to chase Susan down to do a high five and she took off the other way. That's good stuff, isn't it? When God does a work in somebody's life, it becomes a, apparently and abundantly apparent. Maybe that's, that's kind of redundant. Um, it shows up. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Uh, when God does something in somebody's life, it shows up. And, um, and if you know Susan at all, you, you know that she just kind of bubbles over with uh, a lot of exuberance. Hey, Susan. <laughs> Here you are. Just, just wanted to do that. I was going to give you a high five. I'm just going to sorry. There you go. Okay. You just took off the other way and messed me up. Oh, when we, um, when we talk about Christ and uh, the work of God in our lives, it's, it's amazing that when his people or when, when we turn over our lives to him, that he does some incredible things. Um, if you were here this morning, a little earlier, you heard testimony of God's work, and, and we could have probably had a shout and match back there as well, because um, God did some, some things in the lives of individuals. I mean, Justin's working with Billy Newton Wrestling, and um, Zach was talking about going to West Virginia, and, and Sam was talking about 320 ministry, and, um, and, and Cynthia, there we go. I was trying to, I did not, obviously I did not have the order. Um, Cynthia talked about a couple different things. She talked about shoe boxes, but she also talked about toy store at Christmas and, and just how God was blessing there and the different country shoe boxes went to. And so that was part of what she shared, but, but there are others. You know, I look around the room and I think there, there's probably 20 or 30 more people that could have been back there talking about what God has done over this past year. And, and it may be through things like Upward, like Joe shared. Um, it may be the involvement of listening to, um, to somebody who's in elementary school share their verses on a Wednesday night in Awana. I mean, it could be that. It could be, um, there could be an abundance of things that we could talk about. The, the bottom line is, what has God done in your life? And how has that played out as you've gone throughout this last year? So we celebrate missions on one hand today, and on the another hand, we celebrate in advance of what God's going to do, knowing that he is, uh, he is very much at work in the lives of individuals. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start a series this morning, and um, as we think about God's work in our life and think about who we are in Christ um, the series will become clear as we go, and it's a series called Exiles, and we are going to be in First Peter for uh, several weeks. I can't tell you exactly how long it's going to last, um, but it'll be at least through Easter and probably a little bit beyond that. Uh, but we will be in First Peter, and I read this quote because it kind of starts us out in the spot of First Peter, uh, what Peter shares right at the beginning of this letter. Charles Swindoll wrote this, I know of nothing that has the power to change us from within like the freedom that comes through grace. So there's freedom in grace. 
And what we're going to find is right here at the very beginning of this letter, Peter is wanting to share with a group of people about the importance of grace and where it starts. Because there is a starting place for the grace of God. In the lives of individuals, when we receive Christ as our Savior, we just we receive the grace of God at that point, but then there is the idea that we must live in grace. It doesn't stop there. It can't be, hey, I've got God's grace, now I can just sit back and relax and take it easy. No, there is a need for God's grace all the time. And if you've gone through any kind of trial in your life, and I'm guessing that if I had you raise your hand, you could come up with something where there was a trial or a difficulty or a circumstance where you'd say, whether you, whether you seem like you got it or not, you'd say the grace of God would have been important. We can go back. Deb and I have had conversation over the last 48 hours about situations in our lives, whether it be marriage or with kids, and we say the grace of God is important. Grace is always important. We have the need for it. And there's nobody in this room that is immune from the need. So if I were to ask you the question, where is your need for grace? Could you come up with an answer? I'm not asking you to do that out loud, but I want you to think for just a moment. If I were to say, where could you use God's grace? Where would it be? Kind of run that through your mind. Because all of us have a need. In fact, we could probably list out several things on an individual basis about why it would be important for that, that particular thing to have God's grace applied to it. Because we see it as, um, as a powerful commodity, an asset, a need in our life. G.K. Chesterton relayed this assertion, and and it was interesting that he addresses this, and it's just a different take on grace. He says, "A a legend has run around the newspapers that Bernard Shaw offered himself as a better writer than Shakespeare. Okay, so this is false and quite unjust. Bernard Shaw never said anything of the kind. The writer whom he did say was better than Shakespeare was not himself, but Paul Bunyan. And he justified it by attributing to Bunyan a virile acceptance of life as a high and harsh adventure. While in Shakespeare, he saw nothing but reckless pessimism. According to this view, Shakespeare was always saying, out, out, brief candle, because his was only a ballroom candle. While Bunyan was seeking to light such a candle as by God's grace should never be put out. So what he was saying is that there is optimism. There is a positive thing that comes when we apply God's grace. Paul Bunyan was able to write about it and say, I rely on God's grace for life because it is a a life and a grace and an optimism that does not go out. It is important to us. At the very end of the introduction to 1 Peter, he writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we kind of blow by that because if you read through the New Testament, you see Paul doing very similar type phrasing in his letters. He'd say, grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you in Christ Jesus. We see that all the time. 
And we kind of blow by it. We say, eh, okay. It's like saying sincerely at the end of a letter and, and we don't give it a whole lot of thought. Yet at the beginning of this, it is extremely important that the recipients of this letter understand that grace and peace were extremely important to their situation. It was more than just a casual phrase. It was something that held deep meaning for the people that were going to receive this letter. Grace and peace needed to be at an ever-increasing level for them. Peter writes this, and and we have to ask the question, what made Peter's letter relevant? And, And what makes it apply to us today? What importance is there in this letter for us? Let's, let's just read through this section. Would you stand as we read this introduction to 1 Peter? Starting in 1 Peter 1, we'll just read verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. God, Your Word holds a lot of truth, but it holds a lot of challenge at the same time. And Father, as we look at this very short passage, remind us of who we are in Christ. Father, I pray that the things that I say pale in comparison to the voice that we hear from you. And God, that, that as we see your word for what it is, as we hear your voice, we would on the front end of everything that happens this morning, say, yes, God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. God, may our yes be first. And so, God, as we look at this, speak to us. Father, help us to understand your presence in this place. And God, with power, with authority, teach us. And Father, I pray that the world would be changed because of our obedience in heart and in mind and in action. Because we belong to you. And you call us for your purpose. And so God, guide us this morning through this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the background to this letter is pretty interesting. We know that it is written by Peter. Likely, it was written by Peter and... um, and Silas. You go, what? I don't get... Silas and Peter wrote this together, but it's Peter's word. Silas becomes a scribe. And so if you, if you look at this, you understand just, just where that comes from. Um, but it, regardless, it is Peter that is sharing. And it is Peter's authority that carries the weight of this letter moving forward. And so when Peter writes this, we have to understand what did Peter come out of? Peter was a fisherman, you remember. He was the, uh, from Galilee, He was the brother to Andrew. He was outspoken, one of the original 12 disciples. Every time I read original 12, I think of Krispy Kreme. I'm sorry. Um, But he was one of the the original 12 disciples. 
He was part of that inner circle. He was known as the one who, through his spirit-led insight, identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, he walked on water. Um, he had a declaration of allegiance to Jesus at the Passover meal. You remember, he said, no, I don't want to be washed. And Jesus says, no, no, if I don't wash you, you're not with me. He tells him that. He's also the guy that did the um, impulsive slicing off of a centurion's ear. So, so there's a, a pretty sordid past for this guy named Peter. But there's more to it. He's also known for his three denials of Christ prior to the crucifixion. And then also the encouragement along the seashore post-resurrection when Jesus comes to him and asks him, do you love me? And Peter answers back, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus keeps drilling down and said, do you love me? And almost to the point of offense. And Peter says, you know that I love you. And then Jesus reveals to him what's going to happen next. Peter had an understanding of the need for grace. If there was anybody in that inner circle that, that understood what it was like to be a failure and a success, it was probably Peter. He needed grace and he also knew that that what it was like to bestow grace. He and Paul didn't always see eye to eye on things, and so he needed to bestow grace. He was imprisoned, and after the, writing this letter, was crucified. You remember, Jesus changed Peter's name. He, he didn't start out as Peter. He started out as Simon, didn't he? And Jesus came along and said, we're going to call you Rock. And, and Peter, I'm... I'm sure he's thinking, uh, that's probably the wrong description. I was back there talking to Neil just a little bit ago, and we were messing around. And Yeah, yeah, you. Um, all of a sudden, he's like, what, who, what? Um, but we were, we were talking, and he's like, yeah, just faking like he's going to punch me. And, and, um, and I, I was like, yeah, just go right ahead. This is soft rock. You know, this is your favorite radio station. Um, so... But Peter's called the rock. And, and it's, it's a different kind of identity for him. Because Peter's the one who is going to be the spokesperson, not just for the disciples in failure, but also that spokesperson in Acts 2 when they're post-Pentecost or at Pentecost when they share the gospel and it's a mighty move of God. He becomes outspoken there just the same. This letter, so we understand who wrote it. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, declaring this authority that he had, but also the understanding that Peter is not a perfect guy. And so as he shares, we're going to understand that throughout, this, throughout this, this book, this letter, that Peter was imperfect, but he's sharing with the people that need to hear a word from somebody who was imperfect and not only understood grace, but knew how to give grace. So he's an apostle. And this letter was written around 64 AD. The Roman Empire was under the rule of Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, you say Nero was a bad guy. And depending on what history part you read, there were some things that Nero did that were actually pretty good. But all in all, he was a pretty wicked individual. 
Um, he, his desire was to build a particular piece, and depending on which commentator you read, it was Nero that, whose thugs may have set the fire that, that burned down Rome. But it was also that he could get what he wanted to get. And so, um, out of that, and according to a Roman historian and anti-Semite Tacitus, although the evidence exists that would pin the destruction of Rome on Nero and his um, and his followers, he turned around and blamed Christians as a small sect out of Judaism, and said they are the blame because of their because of their anti-national stance against the empire of Rome. And so what happened was Christians were blamed for the burning down of Rome. And, and out of that, because Nero wanted to make an example of them, began to kill them. He threw them into the lion's den in the Colosseum. He took them and killed them and then put them on stakes and burned them as torches in his garden. You think, how can somebody do that? When your life is turned over to Satan and Satan has control of your life, there is no limit as to what you will do against the name of Christ. So I'm fully convinced that, that although we could look at some of the good stuff that Nero may have done during his rule, he was a very wicked individual, and Satan was using him to affect the church. The thing that he may not have understood is that when persecution, when persecution comes to the church, the church usually flourishes. It becomes a greater force as the people of God begin to rely on God's grace more. So a dispersion takes place. Here we read about it in this first, first verse. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So that, that area, and if you look on the map on your insert, you see where that's at. It's essentially south of the Black Sea, and that whole area, it's, a, it's to the east of Rome. And what had happened is those Christians that were in Rome and wanted to be separated from Nero's persecution, at least by some distance, moved to that area, and they became exiles. And so they, they went there, and Peter is addressing that. And we could ask the question, God, where are you in this? Why did you not protect Christians? Don't they belong to you? Shouldn't you have stood up for them and maybe knocked off Nero? Wouldn't that have been the appropriate thing to do? John Phillips writes this. He said, God knew who they were and where they were. In an area manifesting growing and terrible hostility toward them, and he, God, had a purposeful or a purpose to accomplish that was in keeping with the fact that they were there. So what John Phillips basically says, he says, God knew exactly where they were and exactly why they were there, and they were there to accomplish God's purpose. They were a group of people that were exiles. And as we read here in this version, they were elect exiles or chosen exiles. When um, you know some of my story and growing up and moving around, and when I moved from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, things changed. And we were only in Cleveland for about seven months. Now that, that holds a whole lot of things to it. Like uh, there were a lot of things that changed. 
First thing that was questioned was what football team allegiance do I have? But, but you know, that happened here too. So uh, you guys aren't off the hook on that one. But, but in Pittsburgh, everything was stable. I mean, I had grown up there. I went back and, I, you know, I, I like to go back and Google Earth kind of, kind of thing and look at, look at pictures. And I went back this week and looked at the house that I grew up in. And I'll tell you, it's smaller than I remember. Um, and they've, they've added on. They've added part of a driveway, but the neighborhood looks the same. And so what I did is I took, took that map and I walked, uh, kind of went down the street and went, that's where I played baseball and, and started looking at different things around that area. It was a, it was a very stable place. I had friends there. I, I started looking at my friends' houses that I went to on a regular basis. There was nothing strange about it. Um, it was the surroundings that I was comfortable with. It was home. And when my dad got transferred to Cleveland, uh, we moved into a different area. It wasn't just not Pittsburgh. It was Cleveland. And, and we moved there, and I started looking at that house. And I didn't remember that house exactly the same, but we only had about seven months there. But I can tell you what changed. The accent changed. See, there's no accent. Yes, there is. But you would say that there's an accent in Pittsburgh, and I would tell you there's not. But there's, there's an accent that changes between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Um, the culture was different. New school, fit, trying to fit in. Clothes were different. But the only thing that stayed the same with that is, I went to a high school that had the exact same, same colors as I did when I was in Pittsburgh. So some, some of that didn't have to change, but it seemed like everything else did. Temptations changed. I now lived in a neighborhood with fairly affluent folks, and, and I got invited to places that I'd never been invited to when I lived in Pittsburgh. And so some temptations changed. Opportunities changed. There was a degree of fear and uncertainty it was the place that I tell my kids, I walked uphill in the snow to school every day. And it's true, it was level. But it was snowy and I did walk to school. You know, and it was just different. Everything was different. The recipients of Peter's letter are in a place that is filled with all the emotions of having to move. You know, we kind of, we, we look at that and we say, well, they didn't have a challenge. They just had to follow Christ. Look at the letter. It's okay. But this word exile puts it in a different category. And if you've ever moved away from someplace that you were used to some, to someplace you weren't used to, you understand the emotions of the people that were receiving this letter from Peter. If you've ever changed churches, that would be true as well. Some of you have been in this church for a very long time, and yet some of you are new. And when you walked in, whether, whether you were, have been here a long time or new, there was a degree at which everything was familiar, but there was a degree at which everything was different. And it was a culture to get used to. Well, these exiles that Peter's writing to are in that same spot. They had to get used to a new area with different people. And although they may have traveled somewhat together, there was still, they were still living in an area that was unfamiliar. And so Peter writes to them, 
They're in a situation where their future seems uncertain. It may be frightening. And in the midst of these, these emotions and possibly the spiritual valley of questioning, Peter writes this letter of encouragement, a letter of grace, one where he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So there are three things I want us to, to catch this morning. The first thing is that believers must recognize the cultural tension. We must recognize the cultural tension. The New American Standard Bible records it like this. It says, those who reside as aliens, and then it uses the word chosen. Those who reside as aliens and are chosen. See, God knew them. We have to understand that God knew them. Their identity was in Christ, but they were residing in some place that was unfamiliar. In fact, when we come to Christ, our citizenship changes, doesn't it? And the older we get, we start looking more forward to our citizenship in heaven than we do the amount of things that we need to do here. And their, their life was in this spot where they didn't know what the future was going to look like. There was a, a sense of cultural tension for them. And is there not a sense of cultural tension for us? Think about where you live and how you live and, and what you're around on a daily and weekly basis. Listen to this. Just Christians are not as respected or accepted. Would you say that's true? How about the church is no longer the center of society? Some places it's not part of society at all. Truth has become relative in the minds of people and there's a self-reliance that has taken place of the God-reliance place that we used to see. And we say, well, that's not true for everywhere. It is true for some places. If we were to have a conversation with those that are working for Christ in Montreal, we would, we would quickly understand that because, because of who they are, they're not allowed to own land, yet they're trying to do a work for Christ. And their way of reaching folks looks vastly different from the way we would do it here. And, and Marianne can speak to this, and I'm sure she would be glad to speak to you about the trip that's coming up. If you'd like to go to Montreal and work with, work with La Chapelle Church there, then, then I, would, I would say get in on that, but it will look different than what you're used to here. We must recognize the cultural tension. And I think it's an ever-widening gap. Now, we can do two things with that. We can complain about it and go, it's not like it used to be, and get kind of whiny about it. But that's not our place. We can't bemoan the fact that it isn't like it used to be. Peter's addressing a group of folks that have moved into an area that it's not like it used to be. You remember Israel, when they left Egypt, it's not like it used to be. And we can get in that funk the same way it's not like it used to be. And we can feel very down, or we can see ourselves in the identity of Christ and move forward where God has placed us. Peter's audience had to come to grips with the reality of their situation. But they had to understand the potential truth that God was directing their steps. What did that look like? Second thing, believers must realize their biblical identity. Look what it says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Did the circumstances of the people that Peter was writing to, did that surprise God? I don't think so. I don't think he was surprised at all by Nero's response. I don't think that surprised God at all. I think God can take that and use it. And essentially what we can do is we can take that word exile because we can concentrate on that. We can change that and just change it out for living in. And say they were the elect or chosen living in these places. Because that, that's the way it would apply to, apply to us. Is we, we may not feel ourselves as exiles going to a different place and being put out, but we're certainly living in a place where the things around us are different than they used to be. So we can apply what Peter is going to be sharing. This word foreknowledge in, in this passage, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, uh, is the Greek word prognosis. You know, we look at that, we say, oh, that's a medical term. And, and the idea is, what does, what does our future look like? And they couldn't answer that, but we do know that God has foreknowledge. And so we have to come to grips with the idea that God understands what it looks like down the road. Now we, we kind of, and I want to address this very quickly because we need to move through this, but understand that when Peter uses the word elect, and the word foreknowledge, they can be joined together. They don't have to be separate. We don't really take the stance that says, God foreknows where people are going to end up. Therefore, he does election like that. God has the ability to look forward and know what's going to happen. And so he can address election from the standpoint of foreknowledge. Remember, this is Peter's letter, but it's God writing his love letter to Christians at this point. God knows where they will end up and who they are, and he knows how they responded to the invitation to be part of the chosen, the elect. You okay with that? God offers his invitation to every single person to come to the knowledge and saving knowledge through Jesus Christ to respond to God's invitation of salvation. It is open to everyone, whosoever. Yet God can come out here, way over here in the future, and say, I see where it applied to that group of people or those people individually. He has the ability to separate those things. His foreknowledge does not drive his election. So when we look at this, we have to we understand some things that God is working with a group of people that were put out, but chosen by God. They were the elect. They were those that belonged to Christ, and God has foreknowledge of them. Greg Allison, who wrote a commentary on this, says, asserts two things that are in play here. The early church generally associated divine predestination with God's foreknowledge of what people would be or do. Secondly, the early church presented salvation in terms of cooperative effort between God and human beings. And I want you to hear this clearly. 
I don't want you to miss that part of it. It says, in terms of cooperative effort between God and human beings, it's not that we can provide any part of salvation for ourselves, but we must respond to God's invitation to receive salvation. Okay? Hear it? That's where the cooperation comes in. God invites, and we respond to the invitation. I want you to also note the Trinitarian part of this passage. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ for, for sprinkling with His blood. The sanctifying work of the Spirit begins in conviction. It's the indwelling, the securing, the completing of our relationship with Christ as the Holy Spirit works in us and pours grace on us. We need the Holy Spirit. Then there's obedience to, to Jesus Christ. It's a, uh, we don't necessarily like that word obedience because it means that we have to do something that we may not want to do. Uh, I know that most everybody in here has been in the spot where you were probably told by a parent or a grandparent or somebody to clean your room, right? Some of you are going, I'm not admitting it. That was a long time ago. Or I've forgotten it. I was told that. I was told, Bob, you better clean your room. And I, and I got, sometimes I got um, the proper first name and a middle name, depending on how well I was doing in my obedience. And they say, clean your room. My job at that point was not to argue back and say, I don't want to be, I don't, don't want to be obedient to you. Because that would have caused some issues. We'll talk about that privately if you want to. But it would have caused some issues. My dad required obedience. And so when we read obedience to Jesus Christ, it ought not take us by surprise that God calls us to obey His Word in, in the way that Jesus Christ has provided salvation for us and we are in relationship to Him. We become obedient to Him, following the, His commands. And then the sprinkling with his blood. Hebrews 10, and 23 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The idea of full assurance in, in that Hebrews passage is to have a most certain confidence. To be fully assured that we belong to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Peter wanted the recipients of this letter to understand that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were involved in calling them and securing them for where they were. And if they were to find their identity, identity in anything else than their identity in Christ, they were going to be sadly disappointed and would struggle in this new place of being in exile. He wanted them to have assurance that they were saved by God and belonged to God, that their identity was in Christ, that they were not outcasts, which would be easy, an easy label to lay on them. They were not abandoned. They were not discarded. They were not alone. That they were gods. 
So although we live in a cultural tension and, and we, need, we need to understand our relationship with God in identity, we also have to understand that we must reside in grace. Peter, we can go back to Peter, was a failure. Insecure and in sin. And if we were to put a label on Peter, we could address him by all of those things. And so are we. All of us in this room have failed. Everyone in this room is imperfect. And we have insecurities. We could easily take on the label of discarded. But that's not who we are in Christ. We are immensely loved by a God that provided salvation for us. And so Peter, when he writes this, you are elect exiles of the dispersion that, according, that you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience to Christ, and sprinkling with His blood. He, need, he need, needed them to understand, and He wants us to understand that we must reside in our identity in Christ. Believers must reside in applied grace is the third point this morning. It's one thing to reside in a location. It's another thing to reside in grace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So how does someone reside in grace? We must go back to God's character. That's where we start. Because it's God's grace that gets applied to us. You know, I could go around this room and you guys could offer me grace and you know that I mess up and you can say, hey, I want to give you grace in this particular area. I, I, I got, because of a sickness, Vic and I and, and Gary got to referee games on Friday night at Upward. And I've told you before, that is one of the most uncomfortable positions for me to be in because I am not a good referee. And I know that. And, and yet, if we don't make a call, we, we're kind of bestowing grace that may be undeserved. And at the same time, we could blow the whistle. It's all about grace, isn't it? When we reside in grace, because my character is flawed, my calling is going to be flawed. But when we go to God and ask Him to call it, His character is perfect. And so His grace is perfect for our need. He loves me, and He is good. He loves you, and He is good. And Philippians 4, 8, 9 tells us how we can reside in grace because it reminds us to go back to the character of God. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Where do we get the most upset? When the things around us don't change and they don't go our way. But it doesn't say to dwell on those things. It says to really dwell on the character of God and let God's peace kind of wash over you as you go through it. 
Paul nor Peter tells, tells them to run from their circumstances. What he says is, in your circumstances, rely on the grace of God. And the peace of God will follow. Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 8, essentially it says, live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Two ways to look at it. In verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we don't really have an excuse for not living in the grace of God except for we often desire the fleshly part of life more than we desire the spirit part of life. We can identify with the exiles here because they are in a place of change. And they face the same things that we do when the things around us seem to crumble. We need to go back to the grace of God because God understands something. And Paul wrote about it in Romans 8 and later in that chapter he says that there is something better ahead. He wrote this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hear that present times. Suffering of present times. Put it in whatever realm you want, whether it's cancer or a move or a loss of job or something else. Those can be circumstances where you go, where are you, God? And at the same time, look at this and say, well, if Romans 8.18 really is true, then this is present and temporary. There is something better ahead. Second thing, out of this same passage, there is someone bigger in charge who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword but Paul could have wrote the same thing to, the, to these same exiles, couldn't he have? That's what they're going through. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Makes sense? But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly, conquer, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor thing present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear what Paul is saying. Hear what Peter is saying. You live in the grace of God. You identify with Christ and have that grace applied to you. Your present circumstances are temporary. We must reside in grace. Peace will follow. These exiles were essentially missionaries to Asia Minor. They were encouraged to live in grace when their circumstances intersected their plans and caused them to go someplace they didn't want to go. Kim Hammond and Darren Cronshaw are quoted in an article entitled Missional Imagination. This is what they write. There are two competing postures for the people of God today. A church of consumers demanding goods and services, and a church of missionaries 
sent and sending into the world. And this is what the author of the article, as they quote these two, this is the, what the author comes to a conclusion of. It is our mindset, not our location, that makes a difference. It's our mindset, not our location, that makes a difference. So let me ask you this. What's your mindset? What's your mindset? Is your, the world around you so difficult that you cannot follow God? Or do you have the mindset that within the circumstances that I'm in, the grace of God can be applied and I will do what God asked me to do? What's your mindset? Another way to ask it, are you a paralyzed exile, paralyzed resident, or an empowered resident? The church can easily slip into a me mentality, but that's not the drive of God or God's will. God wants to take us to do great things for His purpose. So this morning, be encouraged to live in grace. Be encouraged to live in peace to the fullest measure. That, that idea being multiplied to you means to keep on going in it. That you just keep increasing in the grace of God and in the peace of God as you surrender your life to Him. See, God's invitation stands to be shaped by Him for His glory. So as He offers an invitation to you, how will you respond? I would encourage you to respond with this phrase. I will be open to His work in me. I will be open to His work in me. And so whether that means you apply the grace to where you're working, how you live at home, where you go this week, or when you go across the world with the gospel, that you will allow God to do what only He can do in you, to accomplish what He wants to through you. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.